So good to be here. So we are starting, as some of you know, um, Sojourn Wide. We're going to be preaching essentially the same calendar. We all, the, all the pastors, the various Sojourn churches got together last summer and had the privilege of just brainstorming and praying and putting together a preaching calendar. We're not beholden to it, but we're all preaching through John. Um, not every single verse, because we only have about 15 weeks, but um, we're going to be preaching through it for about three months, one week past Easter. So this is our first, this is our first, uh, obviously, um, time to do that. So we're in John 1. I say obviously because uh, we just planted, but Heights, and we were off last week, but Heights started and Montrose started this series last week. So if you were at Montrose or Heights last week, apologies of sorts, because you're going to hear the same text preached, but it'll be a different sermon, and it's a, such a good one, right? So there's no way to squeeze this sponge adequately. There's just so much, so much goodness in it. So without further ado, let's jump into the text. Um, John's prologue. So Mark Twain wrote, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. The French have an expression, mojus. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Um, the right word, mojus, the right word, the exact right word. And if you've, if you've written at any length, um, or if you, even if you haven't written, but you appreciate words, and sometimes you have a, you know what, I'm, you know what they're talking about, you have a word lodged in the back of your head, and you kind of know it's there, it's in the bank somewhere, but you can't pull it forward, and you keep trying different words, and it's not the one you're looking for, and then all of a sudden it comes to you, and when it does, it's lightning. Uh, that's it, the, mo ju the mojus has just arrived, that right word. Um, here in, in this beginning of this book, and in this book, what John's telling us is that Jesus is the mojus of God. Uh, he's not the almost right word to tell us what God's like. He is the right word. He's the exact right word to tell us exactly what God is like. He's not the lightning bug. He's the lightning. And in him, the light of the living God shines still and is lighting up this world. And as Austin prayed, our prayer is that that would continue through us and in us in this, in this area where there's lots of darkness. There's darkness in this heart, friends, and there's darkness in each of us. And Christ is that light to come and to illuminate our dark places, to go to work on us, to save us, and to work that salvation out until we are fully his and with him face to face. So three points this morning, if points help you. I know they do. Some of you have said, hey, the points really help me. So Jesus as the word. Jesus as the light and life, and thirdly, Jesus as the exact and perfect expression of the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus as the word, point one, Jesus as the light and the life, point two, and then Jesus is the exact expression of the Father, full of grace and truth. Just a tiny bit on the author as we start this series, um, it's John the Apostle. If you're, familiar, if you're familiar at all with the scriptures, sometimes get confused um, with John the Apostle, John the Baptist. So the one writing this is not the Baptist, not the guy that baptized to prepare the way for Messiah, for Jesus, for the Son of God in the flesh to come and to save us. Um, that Baptist is mentioned in verses 6 through 8 here in this text, in part because he prepares the way for the coming of Jesus. And then that's kind of where John the Apostle, who, who wrote this book, um, the apostle of Christ, the disciple of Christ. That's where he goes right after this prologue. We're not going to touch that text, so I just want to make that clear. Next week, we're on to chapter 2. We're on to 
the first miracle, the miracle of water to wine in Cana, which is, I think, what they're preaching this week in Heights and Montrose. Um, this disciple was known as the beloved disciple. He was probably Jesus' closest friend on earth. No better person, friends, to tell us about what Jesus was like. And so we're going to walk over these next weeks together to look at John just unfold God himself to us through the person of his best friend, Jesus Christ. I can't think of a better way to start the new year and to start a church than with this book and with this text. Because as you, as you know, in the beginning are the first words out of the gate for John. In the beginning, and he's going right back to Genesis. He's going right back to the beginning of the Bible. But I think this is an even better start than Genesis 1, which is, would probably be my second vote for starting a church. I've thought about it for years, maybe decades, and so what am I going to preach my first, you know, Genesis 1. This is even better because it takes us back to the beginning, but it's so explicitly full of Jesus Christ as well, and that's just a pleasure. So point one, Jesus as the Word. Let's dig in. The point's simple but profound, and that is that Jesus the Word tells us exactly what the unseen God who his spirit is like. He is an, here's a big phrase, he's an enfleshed articulation. He's an enfleshed articulation of the invisible God. Do you want to know what someone is like? Listen to that person speak. Their words tell you who they are. So there's a thing about words that's really a mystery that no philosopher or philologist, the study of words, can really adequately, adequately explain. And when you tar- start to try to deconstruct language, if you study the history of philology, you'll see it's not a pretty picture. When you start to deconstruct language, you end up really with just a mess on your hands. Um, it's a mystery. It's kind of like peeling an onion. Um, the word is distinct from the person who spoke it, but not separate from, because the, someone's words is who they are. The words that come from someone tell you who they are. Once you get past the chitter-chatter, what they really say day to day, um, that is... It comes from that person's character and their very being. It expresses their exact person and character. But it's their word, it's with them, it's not, it is them, but it's distinct from them. And that's one of the things John's tapping into here um, as he opens up this book. Uh, Jesus is that word of God, distinct from God and yet God himself. He tells us exactly what God's like. You can't really get to know someone very closely at all if they don't speak. Even if, even if the person does sign language, if deaf or mute, they're still speaking, and you can get to know that person through that articulation. But if someone's not speaking, there's only so far you can go. And what John's saying is that Jesus is that speech of God. He's how we know God. Um, Jesus is the foundation. Why is he going back to Genesis? A million reasons, right? I mean, I cut out a sermon's worth of material on this point alone, and you're saying, thank God. I always tend to go long. Um, Jesus is the, what is John telling us in part by going back to Genesis? Jesus is the foundation, the foundation of God's revelation to mankind. Everything that God has revealed to all creation and certainly to us, he has done through the word. How did he make everything? He spoke it, the word. How do we know God? Through his special revelation, the scripture that's been written down to us through the ages, through his prophets, um, and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the foundation of God's revelation to, to creation and, to, and certainly to mankind. 
He's how we know about God, and more importantly, he's how we know God personally in relationship. Again, you can't have a relationship without words. Um, okay, that's up here. Let's bring it down to, I'm going to talk about my son for a little bit. Pastors with young kids can't resist. It's happy illustrations. I've noticed that with Brandon, our Heights pastor. It's always about his kids. So Seth, my son, is five. He's my only son. Um, if you didn't know me at all, pretend like you don't know me at all. Some of you, that's not hard. You don't, you don't know me at all. Um, but if I wanted you to know what I was like, I could send Seth. I know, it's funny. If you know him, he's a little toe-headed. He's in there. He's in the kids thing. He's five. He's really articulate, though. So you'd get to know me some, as he told you about how I like to play Legos with him. Sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get me in there because he's just obsessed with Legos. But he gets me in there. We play Legos together. Um, he could tell you about what I look like. I like coffee. I wear a blue robe in the morning. Um, I like coffee again. Um, how I like to wrestle with him. I speak gibberish, tallish, slender, you know, goofy grin, hazel eyes, yada, yada, yada. And he could tell you about what I look like, if you didn't know me at all, and what I'm like, what I like, what I don't like, what I sound like when I'm angry, how bad my spanks hurt. <laughs> so you could get to know me a little bit by, through Seth's words. My son sent to you. You could also get to know me a little bit through his person, just by being around him. Um, he's my child. He comes from me. So physically, emotionally, intellectually, socially, there are lots of resemblances already, and he's only five years old. Just watching Seth and getting to know him would be a way of getting to know me a bit, getting to know what I'm like. Um, Seth could tell you about me in both ways, but imperfectly. John tells us that Jesus uh, tells us with his words and with his person exactly, exactly what the Father is like. It says at the end of the prologue, if you noted, he was, in, he was with God from eternity past. So that's a tough term, and I don't pretend to understand it. You know, from eternity past. No beginning. God's, his aseity, the word was spoken to me last night, so it's in my head still. He's self-existent. Jesus is God. He's distinct from God as a person, as the Son, with the Father. He's always been with God from eternity past. He's been at the side of the Father, is what Austin read and what the ESV says, in his bosom, literally, in his chest. It's, the, it's, the, it's with words the closest way you can describe being with another person. He has had absolute intimate knowledge and, and love of and with and from the Father from eternity past. You can't be closer. He was with God and he was God and is God. In calling Jesus the word, John's telling us that Jesus, through his words and actions, is the best one to tell us what God the Father is like. This is one of the huge deposits of the Gospel of John. Okay, but he's telling us more. Let's keep going with this Seth thing. Imagine that I'm a king. I said imagine. All right, I know it's, it's a tough, if you know me, it's a tough stretch. But imagine that I'm a king of some important country um, it, it's, hard, it's just hard to gain entrance to. Um, and so basically, it's going to be impossible to get to know me, just if, if you don't have a leg up. Um, but if Seth gets to know you and takes a liking to you and you become his friend, and then he makes it his mission to, well, not his mission, he just, he acts as an entree into your relationship with me. If he says, Dad, I want you to meet this guy, this gal, it's done. I mean, if my son says, I want you, this person's important in my life, I'm, it's going to happen. So he's... He's your entrance to me as king of this nation, and otherwise you just wouldn't have had a chance. 
Well, John's also telling us in this book that's what Jesus does for us, to the nth degree, though, right? Um, Jesus comes and says, I'm going to take you to my father, to his house. I'm going to take you actually to the home that is your home that you've been estranged from all your life. He's my father, and he was your father, and then this thing happened in the garden, and that relationship was ruptured, and I'm restoring that. Come home. Um, But verses 12 through 13 tell us something that Seth couldn't do. Jesus goes beyond Seth in every way, but in this way especially. Seth could introduce you to me and bring us into a relationship, but he couldn't make you my child. Jesus does. Jesus has the power to make you not just someone who doesn't know God, but someone who's an enemy of God by putting yourself on the throne. We all do it. We're all, if we, if we are honest, when we wake up in the morning, even if we are walking with God, but certainly before we knew God in relationship with Christ, we're focused on us. It's all about us. The world revolves around me, and that's not the way it's supposed to be, not to mention how we break God's law every single day from here and then with our hands and feet too. But we are enemies of God, deserving his just displeasure and wrath. But verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, and what is the name of Christ? Jesus. What does that mean? It means God saves. God saves. You don't save. He came to save you. If you believe in that name, what? He gave, Jesus gave, what are those two words? Those beautiful two words. The right to become children of God. We in Christ have the absolute and perfect right to be God's children with the status of Jesus, with the love Jesus has from the Father. Isn't that amazing? So that's what John's telling us. I'm probably going to use this illustration again when we preach through John 14, but John repeats himself a lot, and he, does, he kind of sets things up here that he goes on to, to unfold later in the book, so no apologies. Um, but Again, with the Seth thing, and then don't worry, I think I, I leave it here. Um, I remember being in Edinburgh. We lived in Scotland for four years recently, and we were in a family housing unit of the university, and I was down with Seth um, in some woods right there on the property, and it's a big five-story tower, and we were on the third story, and I could see our window, and he was pottering around. I mean, he's five now, but he was just old enough to toddle and look like a diner waitress, just kind of waddling back and forth, you know, and he... Uh, he uh, so I was following him around, and he was clueless, you know, just running out. He would It was one of those ages where you, they'll run into the street if you don't grab him by the collar, you know. And so he's just, da, 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 da. and you just have to watch him constantly. And if you if you turned and did a Voltfoss and walked away, they'd be finished, you know. I mean, so I thought I kind of had I had that thought one day as I was following him around. I was like, if I just turned and went upstairs to the third floor and watched him, I could see everything he was doing, but he wouldn't know where I'd gone, where I was. And the point here is that he wouldn't know how to get back. I mean, he wouldn't have had a clue. You give him a thousand years, if he'd stayed that age in that condition, he never would have been able to get back to me. Um, And that's really the picture that we have of the world when Jesus steps into it. The light of the world, not just carrying light, he is the light that spoke and created light. Not just physical, but spiritual light. He is the light, and he stepped into total darkness. We, the world was completely disoriented. We made ourselves, as I said, enemies of God, We'd put ourselves in a position that even through perfect obedience, we could not have rectified because God doesn't forget about past offenses. 
how do you make up for that? Well, you die. Well, then you're dead. And you can't be with God. We could not rectify this situation. Jesus comes not only to introduce us to his Father, but the light of the world steps into darkness to become God's enemy so that we could become, by faith in him, the son that he is. You see that exchange, that beautiful exchange. And John's going to tell us all about it. Jesus not only says, here's what God's like, and would you like to know him personally? I can make that happen. It's the only way you're going to live. But also, I am that way to know him. Then he comes down from that third story, as it were, and he grabs us by the hand, and he takes us home to his father. Without Jesus, we just can't know the way. We don't have the way. He is the way. That's what John's saying. He's just lopping off every other alternative by pointing us to the person of Jesus Christ and saying, if there was another way, Anselm, the mid-millennium, a thousand years ago, um, theologian said it. You know, this is one of his arguments for why God exists um, and why God provided the cross and sent his son. If there was another way, other than sending his son to be crushed so we could be made whole, to be plunged into darkness so we could be brought into the light of life. He would have done that. He loved his son, but he knew his son was the only way for us to be reconciled to him. And then we get to verse 14. Um, God has always made himself known through his word, as we've established and as John shows us in these first verses. But in these last days, he's done so by making... Uh, his word to become flesh to save us. So just a brief focus on, on that verse. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. So John could have chosen a lot of other words in that semantic domain for flesh. And the word became flesh, sarks in the Greek. But he didn't choose other words. He didn't choose human. He didn't choose, um, let's see, the word took on a body. Uh, he chose flesh. Why? Why did he choose that word? Commentator Leon Morris writes, flesh is a strong, almost crude way of referring to human nature. John does not say the word became man, nor the word took on a body. He chooses that form of expression, which puts what he wants to say most, here it is, bluntly, almost offensively. Why? Well, there was a heresy circulating at the time called docetism, among others. And docetism at its base is that matter is lower than spirit. Matter is base. It's kind of dirty. Um, spirit is higher. And this translated for theists to God can't have a body because God is the highest. God is the best. God is pure. He's perfect. He can't um, debase himself by taking on a body. Certainly not flesh. It's like saying um, skin and bones. That's the flesh doesn't bother us, but it would be the equivalent of saying God took on skin and bones. He became skin and not just took on, he became. There's a difference. He didn't just zip up into a human body. He became. He be, and that's another heresy. He became skin and bones. And what does that do? What does that do for us? John, first of all, he's annihilating. He's just decimating the docetist heresy. Um, in fact, it was, I'll get back to what that does in a second, but it was so unacceptable to Jews of the time that what do they do? When Jesus said, I and the Father are one, if you see me, you've seen the Father, are you making yourself out to be God? You said it. That's enough. Crucify him. God cannot be 
skin and bones. God cannot be flesh. God cannot be sullied by this. Well, you're right. He can't be sullied by it. But he came to lift us up to him and to take all of our dirt and sin and evil into himself. So they crucified him. And, you know, Muslims today, um, they're fiercely monotheistic. And this is the idea that God could become a man is one of the, if not the greatest offense in, in Islam. Um, it's a scandal. And in fact, the New Testament writers, they were monotheists. They were good Jews. They knew um, what a scandal this was. That's why, again, it's why Christ was crucified by his own people who had been prophesied in the Old Testament for millennia that he was coming, coming, coming. And then he came in such a scandalous, blunt, raw, un- almost unbelievable way to save us, to save our skin and bones and not just our spirits, friends. Because what's not taken up can't be redeemed. He came in such a way, in such a scandalous way that they crucified him. And, and the early church is preaching this and preaching this. It's a scandal. It's a stumbling block. Um, it's called a scandalon in the Greek in the New Testament, the gospel. The idea that God would become one of us to save us. It's called a scandalon. Again, Morris says, in this one short shattering expression, John unveils the great idea at the heart of Christianity, that the very word of God took flesh for our salvation. Every part of you that's not taken up by Jesus is damned. I can't put it any simpler. Every part of you that is taken up by Jesus, as you trust in him as your only hope for restored life with God and salvation, is saved is remade, is restored, is redeemed, is made beautiful, will live forever with God who is light and life. This is the beauty of this verse that John is just having really explode on the pages of his prologue for us. And John ate with this man and he drank with this man and he put his head on this man's chest and he saw him crucified and he saw him resurrected. And we're going to get to that in a little bit as we close down. Not there yet. <sighs> Only a man can represent men and women. Only a man can be a substitute for men and women. A dog can't. Only a man. And Jesus was truly man. And that's why we hang on that doctrine because it happened. It's history, as John goes to pains to show, and all the gospel writers. It happened in real space time. And because our salvation depends on it. It depends on it. Um, and also, before we go to a much, much shorter point too, it exalts our humanity, as I've mentioned. This idea that God did not consider it debasing to become one of us. He humbled himself to become a man, a real man, flesh, skin and bones, it exalts our humanity to the highest place. And I could talk more and more about that. We will in future weeks, but what a glorious, what a glorious thing. I just want to say, I just want to preach this before I go to two. If you're struggling with what I do daily, then at times you struggle with whether you're in the shower, you're with friends, you're eating lunch, you're working. I don't care what you're doing. You're nodding off to sleep. You're talking with your spouse or having an argument. Constantly struggling with Am I worth anything? I mean, does God love me? Uh, 
anxiety, um, lack of self-worth. Golly, I struggle with that all the time. But to remember this thought, that Christ became one of us because he didn't consider it debasing. He became flesh because he loves us and he came to save us. And that's just a beautiful thing. And I want you to know that. I know I didn't put it too profoundly there, but it is a profound point that I pray the Holy Spirit takes and just places right on your heart, right in your head, and that that penny drops. That's how worthwhile you are to God. That's the fact. That's a fact. He came for you. Two, Jesus as the light and the life. That was our longest point by far, okay? Jesus as the word, the best expression of God, the perfect expression of God. And secondly, Jesus as the light and the life. This is another take back to Genesis. What's the third verse in Genesis? So first verse, in the beginning, just like John says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, tohu vobohu, welter and waste. Verse 3, beginning of creation, what? And God said, let there be light. Genesis 1-3, Jesus is that light. He is the word that spoke, all, that spoke and all things were created. Without him, nothing was created that has been created. And he is the light from which light comes. Without Jesus, there is no light. And he stepped down into complete darkness. Um, I was in a hunting cabin uh, many times, but one time in particular, 10 years ago, let's say, and I woke up, so I was pretty old. I mean, I wasn't a kid. And I remember waking up, and it was just a different, it wasn't my house, you know? And it's di- You wake up, you know that feeling when you're at camp a lot of times, if you've ever been to camp and you do this, it's like a camp syndrome, but you wake up, and you know you're not at home, but you don't know where you are yet because you just woke up, and it's totally dark, as many camps and hunting camps tend to be. Completely pitch black. Couldn't see my, I mean, I did this. Couldn't see anything. It's like I was in hell. I mean, I, as far as I can understand, I mean, and I got a taste of it right there, you know? Not that darkness in and of itself is bad, but darkness without light, unending. No frame of reference. Completely disoriented. You can't see a thing. You don't even know who you are. And it literally will, it'll drive people, I think it's a form of torture, you withhold light from people for long enough, it'll drive you insane. Studies have been done, I mean, you, we need light almost more than any other thing. Um, or if you've been caving, turn off the, they have you all turn off the lens, same thing. But that's what Jesus stepped into, and I think the people of John's time would have related a little bit better, um, because we, we have electricity, and you know, if it's 12 o'clock at night, we're still good here, but... They didn't have that, and up in, most of humanity hasn't had that up until the past 100 years, until Edison. Um, but we do, and so we have a lot of light around. But they were used to physical, complete and total darkness more than we are. And, of course, what John's saying is Jesus stepped into that, but in a spiritual sense. Nobody knew God. Everybody was totally disoriented. No possible way of getting to him. Forget about it. And Jesus comes and says, I'm the light of the world, and I am, John 8. So we'll see these things. I am the light. I am. And he's making these claims to be God. And the good Jews who know their Bibles, they get this. And so what do they do? They pick up stones to just kill him, to execute the man who happens to be the God who made them. But they don't know that. And what is that showing us? And I want to sit here for a bit. It's showing us that, among other things, Jesus as the light, when he comes near to us, he exposes our darkness. And, you know, physically, if you study the properties of light, and you don't have to study the properties, turn on a lamp in a dark room. 
You know, there's no war. Light invades darkness. Every nook and cranny it filters into, even more than water, it filters into, it, it destroys darkness. Light is offensive. It's invasive. And with the darkness in our own hearts and the things that you and I hide, and I'm king of this, we hide the things that are sins in our lives, evils, hurt, brokenness. Um, we all do it. And we tend to either push people away from seeing those things in us, or I guess one way of pushing people away is just by putting on the best exterior we possibly can. Um, and that's why it's so scary to be really known, because once you really know me, then you're in my business, and then will you love me or will you run? But Jesus is the light, and he comes to expose that darkness and to heal it. And to say, I know it's there, let me in. I can heal it, and I do love you. It's why I came. And one of the reasons we're so big on community is because we, as little lights of Christ, we don't go, ooh, you're not, you don't have your Bible. Bible drill, you failed, um, or whatever. Like, um, we're all messes. We're all desperate sinners. You know what proof? Jesus came for me and for you. That's how bad it is. Want to see him, see him on the cross hanging there? That's what I deserve. That's how corrupt I am. But that's how loved I am, too. That's the grace and the truth that Christ is. And so we gather in community as lights, and the better our community is and the more like Christ, the more we're getting into it with each other. And the less fake we are and the more we just encourage each other to we push back and we push in and we say, no, brother, I'm not going anywhere, sister. And hey, come in here too. Because the, the more of Christ that we carry with each other, the more we're going to be like that. And Jesus is the great surgeon. And a good surgeon, friends, he has to have good light. I remember being uh, in a town, a small town. I can't even remember where it was, but um, I had to get stitches out. They were in, but I had to get them taken out. And I think, I don't think it was getting stitched, but either way, it was stitches. And the, it was a, just a small town deal. And he didn't even take, he had ambient light, like one light in the ceiling somewhere, but he didn't even get a lamp to, the lighting was real bad. And he just, it was like, ah, he pricked me. Yeah, you know, it was like getting a bad shave. I mean, just nick, nick, nick. And um, I think it ended up having to be redone, but the light was bad. But good surgeons need good light. And that's what Jesus is. And fortunately, he's never without one because he is the light. So when he comes, it's painful. And it was so painful when he came into the darkness that they crucified him. But genius that God is and good itself and truth itself that God is, what did he do with that? He planned it from the start to use our evil and our free will and our responsibility to crucify him light and life itself, and through that crucifixion to take what we deserve and to save us. He, he can be trusted. And so um, this is exactly what God does in the beginning with Adam and Eve when they disobey. And the first thing they do is they're shameful and they cover up and they hide from each other and from God. And God comes after them with some questions to try to smoke them out, to try to get them out into the light so there can be some hope of salvation. That's what Jesus comes to do. Why does he acting the same as God did in the garden? Because that was him. That was the God. He was the God in the garden seeking our first parents out. He's not changed. He still does that. And he came as skin and bones, as flesh, as a man, and remains a man to come into our lives and do the same thing and to hold out the light of his glorious gospel. Last point, point three. Jesus is light in life, point two. And then finally, Jesus as the exact and perfect expression of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Someone once asked the great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon how he'd reconcile one of the most intractable problems in theology, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And you know what he quipped? What a, what a clever guy this Spurgeon was. He quipped, uh, he said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try. I never feel the need to reconcile friends. The idea that God's sovereignty provides for man's responsibility, mysteriously. And the same thing could be said about prayer and man's responsibility, because prayer touches on God's sovereignty and our responsibility. But the point here is that you read about, we read about the law and the gospel toward the end of this prologue here. But the law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And if we read it casually, we might be mistaken to think that John's pitting the two against each other. How do we reconcile these things? But Spurgeon would say the same thing to these. There's no, there's no need to reconcile the law of Moses, the law of God through Moses, with grace and truth through Jesus Christ. This is one of the huge sections I cut out, but I think over and over again, outside the church and inside the church, there's this problem, and sometimes it's a problem that's, that's it's an assault on, on the church and on the scriptures, that there's this contradiction between the God of the Old Testament, angry desires, blood propitiation, and, um, and Jesus. Well, actually, if you think for a second about what Jesus came to do, I came to die. That's, I mean, how much more blood, sacrifice, and propitiation, and wrath is there than what Jesus represents to us? But the grace part is that he came and took it for us. And the fact is, guys, that what John is saying here is that the law of Moses prepares us for Jesus. Do you know in that verse, verse 14 that we just looked at, and the word became flesh, sarks, right? And dwelt, that word dwelt, the word became flesh. Jesus became the word eternal became Jesus, became flesh, became a man, and he dwelt with us. That word dwelt in the Greek is tabernacled, tabernacled. What is, he, what is John saying here? There are a bunch of other words in this text that are also pointing us back to Moses meeting God on the mountain in Sinai. What's he saying? He's saying that that tabernacle, that temple that later became a that tabernacle was the movable temple. It was the tent temple while the people of Israel, before they got into the promised land, when they were in the wilderness, it became the temple. It was always the place, what? Where man and God met together. And how did, how was that happen? How's, how did it happen that sinful man could meet in a peaceful, soul-satisfying, saving way with God, who is holy, who can't look on sin? Sacrifice. The temple was all about sacrifice. It happened night and day, minimum, sometimes seven or eight times a day. Blood always shed of what? An innocent thing, something that was blemishless, that did not deserve to die, so that something that brought that innocent thing that did deserve to die could go free. For millennia, this is what Israel literally camped around. This is the heartbeat of the law. It was the law, through the law that God brought the system of sacrifice. Here's how we can meet together. Something innocent has to die in your place. And then Jesus comes, and what does he say? And what is John telling us here? He is that tabernacle. Jesus is God with us. Not only all of the Old Testament written, but all of history. All of history put together by God from the start was driving us to one point. Jesus. Get ready for Jesus because he's coming and he's going to blow the doors off of the temple and say, anyone at all, my arms are open, they're nailed to a cross. Anyone at all, you just come. You come right to God, but only through me. 
because I am the tabernacle. I'm the place where God and man meet. Guess why? Because I am God and man. I am the ladder. I am Jacob's ladder by which heaven and earth kiss righteousness and peace, grace and truth. The Old Testament is the shadow, and Jesus is the reality that casts that shadow. The law is the father of the bride leading us down the aisle to Jesus. And as we close, and as I unload a couple points of application, then we're out and on to more, out to communion. I just want to camp out for a minute or two on this finish, John's finish in verse 18. He takes us back to the beginning of the prologue here in this last verse, like any good author or um, artist, where he tells us that the word was with God in the beginning, right? Here in verse 18, he literally says, no one has seen God, but the only God, is often read, Jesus, who was with God, so distinct, but also God, and has come to us, Jesus, makes him seen and makes him known. And the word that John, John uses there is Jesus exegetes. Literally, he uses the word in the Greek, Jesus exegetes the Father. Jesus comes to us, the only God, with, the God, with God, but distinct from God. He comes, he takes on flesh, and he exegetes the unseen God for us. What does that mean? Well, it's a, some of you know it if you've done Bible studies and stuff, but it's a word that means to, to take out of words what is packed into them. That's what any good teacher will do. Through, that's why you use illustration, application. You take what's, what's loaded down and packed into a word, and you unfold it, and you unpack it, and you show it clearly, and you say, this is what this means. This is what Jesus does with God to us. He exegetes the Father. He excavates him, and he shows us plainly. It's like, have you ever seen the Marines, they, when they pack a flag up after a funeral or when they take it down from a pole? really tightly packed into a triangle, right? Well, if you can imagine God as that flag, what Jesus does is he unpacks it and he puts, he clips it to the pole and he raises it up and it's just unfurled, flying. We can see the design, the colors, everything perfectly. That's what Jesus does with the Father. Do you want to know what God is like? Old Testament God, New Testament God, God eternal, God who was, who is, who will come again. Jesus shows us the heart of God the Father. And we're going to, I think, enjoy seeing God together in these in, uh, coming weeks, and I'm looking forward to it. Lastly, in, in verse 18, um, how, does, how does John finish? Like I said, no one has ever seen God, verse 18, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That, that phrase there, who is at the Father's side, it literally, if you have an ESV, it'll tell you at the bottom, an alternate, not an alternate, what literally what the word means, what the phrase means is, who is in the bosom of the Father. We don't use that word bosom anymore. It sounds weird. It's like Anna Green Gable stuff. <laughs> Girls are laughing. I heard one guy laugh. Good man. You have a sister? <laughs> yeah, I got dragged through all those too. <laughs> Tears. Um, he's in the chest of the Father. Like, John doesn't say on thee, he says in thee, because again, it's the, only, it's the closest way you can say you can convey intimacy and closeness. From eternity past, no sin to keep them apart, total knowing, total love, total acceptance, total admiration, mutual for one another, 
It's what we all long for. It's what we were made for with each other and with God. Jesus had it head on chest. That's the picture John gives us, with Father. Why do I bring that up? Well, it's there, but also it's toward the end of John's gospel. Toward the end, there's this scene, the Last Supper, before Jesus goes to the cross. It's the night before his crucifixion. He's having the Last Supper that he'll have with his disciples, and that's where he says, this is my body. And what happens there? In the midst of that supper, in the midst of that supper, John puts his head, John the beloved disciple, best friend of Jesus, puts his head on Jesus' side, is what the ESV says. Guess what? Same word, kolpon in the Greek. Same word John uses here. Puts his head on Jesus' chest. What's John, what's John telling us? Brilliant John, so understated in his, what he's doing in this book. What is he, what's the theology he's giving us here? Jesus came to invite us into exactly what he has with the Father. Gave it up. Couldn't keep it if he wanted to give it to us. Couldn't keep it for, for a time he had to let it go and take what we have earned justly, which is separation from God in displeasure. What he took, what he gave to us was what he earned and had from time before time. Perfect intimacy with the Father, head on chest. And now John does that, and Jesus is saying, and John's saying, this is what Jesus came to do, to give us that kind of fellowship with each other, with him. And the only way it happens is through Jesus. Now, just a quick point of application, not even going to read it, but I just have to say, I've kind of said it already, so thank God for that. Can we please be a people of grace and truth? Can we please come into the light and be in the light and not be afraid of allowing our darkness to be exposed because we all have it and Jesus loves us through it and he knows so that's part of the process it's part of the beauty of community let's stop being fake can we be a people of grace and truth and there's no need for grace guys if there's no truth Robin and I have just and this is why I didn't want to skip over this we've just as of late had some real not fallout with friends but we've seen a lot of hurt serious Serious relational damage done to people because there's no truth. There's just, hi, how are you doing? Great, good to see you. And then talking behind backs. When we, we all know there's something wrong in this person's life and none of us have the courage or the love to say something, if we're not getting into each other's business, not in a petty way, in a loving way, there's no need for grace. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing fine, thanks. That's not what we signed up for. It's not why Jesus came. It's not the way he relates to us, and it's not the way we ought to relate to one another. Total truth, total grace, forgiving as we have been forgiving, mercy, compassion, and truth. Truth, it's part of how Christ loves us, and it's part of how he calls us to love. So that's it. Um, Let's close in prayer and then celebrate communion together. Father, thank you so much for what do I say? Sending us your own and only son to be crushed so that we could be made whole. The light of life so that we who were in utter darkness could be oriented again and more than that could know you who are life and be saved. Thank you for making us your children in Christ. I pray that if there's anyone in here, and I'm sure there is, and I thank you for it, Lord. You've brought them who doesn't know you and is still an enemy, that they would know that Jesus is just waiting the only way to you, just waiting. He's died for them, and he's waiting for them to come. Pray that you would draw them now, and that we would be a kind of place where they can ask questions and 
know that we love them. Um, thanks for saving us and for loving us and for showing us that and for showing us yourself in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.